even in that worst possible imaginable environment, the need to find something good was overwhelming. And I think that that's our inclination. That's what we do. And, and we have that within us. And, uh, as long as we have that within us, I'm very hopeful for the future of our world and our societies. Hey guys, it's Kathy Heller. Welcome back to the Kathy Heller podcast. Today is such an important, beautiful conversation. I'm so happy to share it with you. Mitch Album is here. He wrote a phenomenal book called Tuesdays with Maury. He also wrote so many other great books and he happens to be one of the holiest, coolest people ever. So if you don't already know him, you're going to really just love him. And we're going to dive into it in a second. Before we get there, I want to let you know that every single week, We are gathering together as a sisterhood to open our hearts and to hold hands as we walk into this life together and to better ourselves and to build the world that we want to see. If you want to join us live together, we have this membership. It's called The Quilt. You can go to kathyheller.com slash quilt and join us every Thursday live on Zoom. And it's a really special time to connect, to meditate, to be manifesting and co-creating the most beautiful lives and really making such deep, deep friendships. So if you want to join me, if you want to join all of us, go to kathyheller.com slash quilt. So today I'm thrilled because the phenomenal Mitch Album is back. He's the author of seven number one New York Times bestsellers. He's also an incredible philanthropist. Plus, he's a screenwriter, playwright, columnist, and songwriter. He was on the podcast a couple of years ago when he released one of his other books, The Stranger in the Lifeboat. But you might also be familiar with his other incredible books like The Five People You Meet in Heaven, Tuesdays with Maury, For One More Day, Finding Chica, the list goes on and on. And now he's back to share his new book that comes out tomorrow. It's called The Little Liar. It's a novel. And the timeliness of this book is kind of unbelievable. It's about a little boy who's 11 named Nico who lives in a coastal Greek city during the Nazi invasion during the Holocaust. And in the book, we hear what happened to him on that day. But basically, the story follows Nico and a few other key characters over the next few decades as they navigate the effects of deception and the grace of redemption. This is such a beautiful exploration of honesty, survival, revenge, truth, and love. And I can't express enough how powerful the message is, especially with everything that's going on in the world right now. So I would definitely go get a copy or order a copy of the book. It is an honor to have Mitch back on the show. He's one of the most gifted writers of our time, and he's really a beacon of hope and light and goodness in the world. As someone who has such a personal connection to the horrors of the Holocaust, it was really meaningful to have this discussion, and I'm grateful that Mitch is putting the story out in the world. So let's get into it. Without further ado, please welcome the brilliant Mitch Album. Mitch, welcome back to the podcast. It's really such a gift to have you. Thank you, Kathy. It's great to see you again, and thanks for having me on again. You are such a mensch. You're just such a kind nice, good human, such a good citizen of the world. Everything you write, everything you do is so loving and helpful. And it's just awesome to have you here. Well, I'm very happy to be with you. I'm not sure I deserve all that, but happy to be here just the same. Well, thanks for receiving it as much as you can. So we've had you on before, which was such a blessing. And we talked about 
so many of the books that you've written previously. We talked about your journey. We talked about how you went from sports into writing and not just writing, but writing the kinds of things that give people some connection with very deep meaning, very deep ideas. Um, and you've done it again. You wrote another book. It's amazing how much there is inside of you. It just doesn't stop. It's like you, once you opened this faucet in your heart, you had so many stories to tell. So you have a new book that's coming out. It's called The Little Liar. It's a novel. And I'm sure that it's going to touch so many people's hearts. Why do you think, first of all, that this doesn't stop? This ability to download the next story. Like, what is it that you opened up inside yourself that keeps giving you the whispers of more stories to tell? Well, first of all, I don't think I was always this way, uh, even though I'm not anywhere near as accomplished as you're making it sound. But the first half of my life or the first half of my working life, anyhow, I was very uh, self-centered and ambitious about my own goals. I was a sports writer and broadcaster, but I really didn't give a lot of thought to, you know, larger issues of life other than how much more successful I could make myself, you know. And so I think I had a lot of weight on the other side of the ledger. And then at age 37, I encountered Maury Schwartz and what ultimately became, you know, the book Tuesdays with Maury. But before it was a book, it was an experience. And it kind of stopped me in my tracks and made me realize that all this work, and, and I, I was working 90, 100 hours a week easily, I mean, every week, and um, all this work and all this ambition and all this effort really wasn't going to be of much comfort to me at the end of my life as I was witnessing the end of his life. Work, money, none of that stuff made him feel any better. And the only thing that made him feel any better were the people that he touched and the lives that he had touched. And I saw how they came back to honor him, you know, during that time, whereas it wasn't work who was coming to visit him. It wasn't the bank coming to pay a visit and saying, you know, let's just sit here and hold your hand because you've given us so much money over the years. So I did this like kind of U-turn. Life kind of did it for me because I wrote Tuesdays with Maury and I was sort of planning on going back into being a sports writer and that whole life. And then the book came out and it wasn't supposed to be a very big book. It was a tiny little printing and, you know, it was just written to pay his medical bills. But for whatever reason, Kathy, it took. And I always say that part of that reason, at least, was somebody's divine plan to turn my life around because everywhere I started to go, people didn't want to talk to me about sports anymore. They wanted to talk to me about the meaning of life. They wanted to talk to me about death and dying. They wanted to talk to me about Maury. And my world began to change and all that energy that I had had from that first part of my life and all that ambition and all that creativity and everything kind of got flipped over on the other side. And I started this sort of new world of like, said, so, well, let's just put it all into stories like the five people you meet in heaven or one more day or other books of, you know, finding Chica and getting involved in charities and things like that. And so I always had a lot of energy. It just, I didn't spend a lot of the first 20 years of my working life using it in this area. So I have a lot of it built up. And uh, now I'm just trying to play catch up. And I am putting that energy into stories that I hope are hopeful for people and inspiring to people and make people think. And um, for whatever, you know, knocking 
I would say it's wood, but nothing's made of wood anymore. Like to believe this is <laughs> some type of linoleum or something, but knocking linoleum that I have way more ideas than I'm going to have years left if I live a normal life. And so I'm just trying to get them out as fast as I can. And, and the little liar was one on my bucket list of a story that I wanted to tell for some time. So I'm glad I finally have reached the point where I was able to publish it or get it published. It's so beautiful and it's so powerful that the way that you share the story and your humility and how you tell the story about where you were at. And most people are very self-involved and they're thinking about their own success. And it really is so, it's just so groundbreaking how this experience you had became an experience that so many millions of people had because you shared it with so many people in Tuesdays with Maury. And then the fact that it has given this new path to your life, I imagine that as you live it and as people hear it, it's very fulfilling because we didn't come to the world to get a big pile of stuff. We, we came here to really fulfill much bigger dreams, which is dreams of purpose and contribution. And, and those are the things that we take with us. And so I know that you have heard it and you know this, but you are doing that. You are giving people more purpose and more by just witnessing your own contribution and then opening us up to the ideas and the bigger ways that we can help. And you've helped so much in your own city. You've helped so much in Detroit, like with homelessness. And we talked about that last time. And, you know, the love that we give away is the only love that we ever have. It's so interesting how that works. So it's very inspiring to say the least to be around you. And I'm so glad, as you said, that you just keep sharing these ideas. And this new book, it's like really fascinating to me. I mean, like my heart's racing as we're talking about it, because to be me in this moment, a Jewish person living here in 2023, um, just very aware of the history and watching as my own kids go to Jewish day school and the day school has, you know, swastikas graffitied on it. And we're dealing with like regular everyday anti-Semitism. I mean, like as I'm talking to you right now, my, I, my legs are shaking. My nervous system is so activated because it's so crazy to me that you're writing this book in this time. And it's a story about history not so long ago. And there are still so many lessons for humanity to learn about all kinds of prejudice. And this particular kind of hate is still very much alive. So it's crazy to me that you wrote this book and it's coming out in a month when this is literally everywhere just a second ago was watching the news in Los Angeles last night, somebody's house, there was a home invasion of a Jewish family and it was a hate crime. And I'm like, this is like one block away from one of my closest friends. So it's fascinating to me that you're writing this story. Let's talk about this story. What are the messages and the lessons that matter most that you're talking about in this story? Well, okay. That's a big question about a big book. Um, so let me answer your question in, in a couple of stages. First of all, I, I had no idea when I started writing this book two years ago, the timeliness of the story. Nobody could have known that. So I don't want anybody to think like, oh, well, I just wrote it for these times. I, that's not it at all. In fact, I wrote it exactly the opposite. There wasn't that much going on in this area at that time. 
but I wrote it for eternity, you know, times. I wrote it to be a forever story because the truth is that issue behind The Little Liar is a forever issue. And that issue is what happens when we take the truth and we bend it to our own purposes and what damage can happen to an individual who deceives and lies and what can happen to a society when it deceives and lies and people believe those deceits and those lies. Even back in, it's funny, when I was in college, I wrote an honors thesis about lying. And at that time, wasn't something that anybody would have thought would have been much of a topic. And for whatever reason, even at that young age, it interested me, the whole idea about what people get away with and when they lie and how they feel when they lie and all that. And I remember like trying to do research and there weren't many books about it. It was really hard to find a lot of texts written about lying, even though, let's be honest, let's be honest about lying. Uh, <laughs> lying is something that people do every single day of their lives, every single day and probably every single hour in some way, shape or form, from an exaggeration to a really big lie. So I always wanted, was interested in it. And I always wanted to write a book that was set during the Holocaust, but I didn't want to write the fill in the blank of Auschwitz. You know, those books were great. Don't get me wrong. I, I love the tattooist of Auschwitz, the librarian of Auschwitz, the, all the many different forms of books that mostly focused on what happened in the concentration camps during, but I just felt that that's been done. I wanted to write something that where I could use the backdrop of the Holocaust, but speak to a lesson that affects us today. And so I waited years to try to find a story that would work because every time I thought of something, I was like, ah, that's too close to that one that was written about the Holocaust or the boy in the striped pajamas or life is beautiful or all those kind of movies and things that have been done about the Holocaust. And I finally came upon a story. I was at a museum and I happened to be listening to one of these videos that they made of a Holocaust survivor. And she was telling a story about how when they came to put the Jewish people in her town on the trains to go to the concentration camps, on the platforms where those trains were going out, the Nazis had used Jewish people to stand there and say, everything's going to be fine. You're going, we're going to new homes. We are going to new homes. We're going to get new jobs. And it was a lie, but they used their own people to lie to them because they knew, you know, wouldn't be believed it was Germans, but you know, maybe we can trick them with their own life. And I always remember like how perverse I felt that was. And that, that's a rare form of evil to use your own people to lie to them about how you're going to kill them. So I said to myself, there's a story there somewhere. And it sat in my brain for years. And finally, I, I had taken a trip to Greece where I had lived out of college in a whole different life. I was a musician and I was a singer and a piano player on the island of Crete and if you one day want to talk about that, I'll tell you that story. But I lived in Greece, so I knew something about Greece. And one of the things I knew was that Greece was affected by the Holocaust, and most people don't know it. Most Holocaust stories and books and everything, they're set in Poland or Germany or Austria or Central European countries. Greece was not only invaded by the Nazis, but the most majority Jewish city in all of Europe and that includes France, and that includes Germany, and that includes Poland, and that includes everything, was in Greece. Thessalonica, Greece, was the only city in all of Europe that had a majority Jewish population. Well, and I it, never knew that. 
Yeah. And it was wiped out by the Nazis, just wiped out. They, there were 60,000 some odd Jews. There were like 1600 left when they were done killing them all. So I then realized I had a place for it. And then I came up with the basic conceit of the little liar, which is there's an 11 year old boy in this village inside Thessalonica, Greece, who has never told a lie in his life. And he's made it to age 11 without ever lying. And everyone in this town marvels at the fact that he never lies. He just can't lie. He admits he didn't do his homework. He admits he stole a cookie. You know, he just doesn't lie. And the Nazis, when they invade, they find out about him and they kidnap him and they trick him into standing on the train platform when the people are being boarded to go to the concentration camps and saying, everything's okay. We're going to new jobs. Everything's going to be good. We're going to have money and all that. And he believes that it's true. He doesn't know. He doesn't. He's a trusting boy. And they tell him it's true. Just tell them that. And then we'll, you can be reunited with your family who they took him from. And it's only when his family is put on the train on the very last train and he runs to them and the German grabs him and keeps him from joining his family. Does he realize and someone yells out, they're not taking us to jobs. They're taking us to die. And that's when he realized he's lied inadvertently, but he's lied to his own family, to his own friends, to his own community, and they're all gone. And it's what happens to him after that. And the book follows him and his brother and a girl who's in love with the two of them and the Nazi guard, the four people from that moment for the next 40 years. And it traces how that lie changed every single one of their lives, you know, in in so many different ways. And so it, it speaks to the larger issue, even though it's set against the Holocaust, not all of it. I mean, because it goes on through the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Um, but it speaks to what happens when we use lying as a weapon and when we create false truths like the Nazis did in Germany about, well, this is all the Jews' fault. If we just get rid of the Jews, we'll have a prosperous society. The Jews stole our money. The Jews are the reason we lost World War One. The Jews are the, you know, the Jews were, were the scapegoat for everything. And they're a subhuman race and they don't deserve to exist. And we just get, move them out of our way, which of course in Hitler's name, when get them off the planet, we'll all be better. And when people started to accept that as the truth, awful things happened. And, uh, that's the warning of this book for the time that we're in now, because, and I'm not talking about what's going on in Israel right now. That's, that's a developing story. I, by the time this podcast reaches an audience, who knows what could have happened? I'm talking about the world and the way we just pick our truths. Now we pick the network we want to watch with the news we want to watch. We pick the things we want to read. We have our own little group of social media influencers or people that we follow. And that's it. We don't concern what's really the truth. We're just concerned that it fits with what we, how we want to see the world. And we need to see that that's really dangerous because that was how stuff began in Nazi Germany. You know, we're just going to look at it this way. Do you know that the law that enabled Hitler to begin to create all those ordinances about Jews can't have a business, Jews can't go to school, Jews can't must wear a yellow star, all those things were given to him under a law that was called not the law to discriminate against the Jews or the law to wipe out the Jews, because who would pass a law like that? The law was called the law to relieve the distress of the German people, sort of like the Inflation Reduction Act. You know, who would vote against it? If you have a name like that, who would vote against it? Is that really what it was? Nobody seems to care. Well, in this case, that was the name of the law in Nazi Germany, and it actually was the death sentence 
to Jewish people. But the word was relieve the distress of the people. So when we start lying through our language and we start lying through our, you know, what we tell the people, we create a very dangerous environment. Sorry for I'm, such a answer. No, I, you should not be sorry at all because this should be on repeat at every time in history for everyone to hear. And it is so urgent always. And like you said, you wrote this book two years ago and it wasn't about the current headlines of the newspaper. It's about a, a truth that we all need to understand, which is we really need to dig to find clarity and to understand before we just regurgitate things. And we live in a time where people just read text messages and hashtags and they don't really grasp. And it's interesting because before this current state of affairs was going on, the rabbi at my kids' reformed Jewish day school gave a class on the history of anti-Semitism, which I think I know something about because I was a a humanities major in college and learned a lot about these kinds of things. But it was really, really powerful to be in that class because he was talking about the libel, the ways that truths were perverted for thousands of years, over 3,000 years, whether Jews were in Tunisia or Morocco or Syria or Italy or France or Germany, like wherever we were, no matter what, whether we were in Spain, whether we were poor, whether we were rich, whether we had a country, whether we didn't have a country, there's always some lie that's told that makes it seem very important and urgent that there should be no more Jews. And it's fascinating how that lie just changes and changes and changes and changes and changes, but it's, it's like this, it's ongoing. And other people who've experienced hate for the same reason experience hate when people tell lies about those groups of people. And so this is a universal message. And it really is clear that you, you said before you're on some, somebody puts you on a divine mission because this is so critical that this message that you're sharing, that we embrace it, that we really embrace it. And so what are you thinking and hoping the answer is? If somebody reads the book and God willing, they get it, they get what you're saying, what's the next thing to do about it? How do we create a more truthful existence? Well, number one, we make truth a priority. And we make it a priority over what we want to hear or who we want to support or what take on things. Sometimes the truth is tough to face. You know, the truth that your candidate may not be the greatest candidate or the person that you're supporting may have made a mistake or that policy that uh, is in your school or in your town or in your may not be the greatest policy, even though there are other ones that are. We're at a point where we're just absolute about everything. You know, if we're on this side, then everything on this side has to be right. And we're of this side and we're against this side and everything on that side has to be wrong. And that's a formula for disaster. Yeah. And that whether you're talking about nations or you're talking about individuals or you're talking about people who can't even sit at a Thanksgiving table anymore because they have political differences and to, to sacrifice your family for that is insane. That's number one. Number two, and another big theme of The Little Liar, is forgiveness. And there's a story 
in this town, the city of Thessalonica, Greece. And this is all true. I mean, most of the stuff in the book, the backdrop is all stuff that happened. And then the, the fictional characters, of course, are made, are made up. But in Thessalonica, Greece, there's this big Byzantine tower on the waterfront, right in front of the, the Aegean Sea. And you can look over, you can see Mount Olympus is right in front of you. And it's a, in a beautiful spot. It goes back to the 15th century. And in the book, the grandfather takes the little boy, Nico and his brother and then the girl up to the top of the tower. And when they're up at the top of the tower and they're looking out over it, he says, I'm going to tell you a story about this tower, which is called the White Tower. And they say, why is it called the White Tower? He says, because it used to be a prison. And for hundreds of years, you know, they had prisoners in here and they killed them. Sometimes they hung them over the sides of the building and the blood and, and the dirt got so much that it was a filthy thing. It was called the Red Tower. And finally, they decided they wanted to clean it up and paint it. But nobody wanted the job because it's so big and so difficult. And so a prisoner inside the tower volunteered to paint the tower by himself if after he was done, they would let him go free and forgive him. He didn't kill anybody, right? It wasn't that kind of crime. It was a you know, spot. And they said, all right. And he did it by himself. One guy took him over a year and he painted the entire massive tower white. And when it was done, they let him go and they forgave him. And the grandfather says to the boys, you know, do you know what the lesson of that story is? And they shrug and they don't know. And he says, a man to be forgiven will do anything. And Nico, the little boy in this book who tells that lie on the train station, spends the rest of his life from the time he's 11 until his dying day trying to be forgiven for that one lie that he told. And you have to read the book to find out if he is or isn't. But I think that that's a very human emotion and needs to be considered also if you're talking about what are the points of the book. Because it's not just here's the dangers of truth and lying, but when we do commit a deception, when we do lie, and think of how many times we've lied in our lives. We've lied and we've ruined our marriages. We've lied and we've ruined business relationships. We've lied and we've broken apart families. We've lied and we've cost people things at work. But what do you do with that after that happens? Do you just, are you just damned for the rest of your life because you were a liar? Or is there a way to be forgiven? And we all search for forgiveness. And Nico, you know, who, who feels that even though he didn't do anything wrong, he feels that he was responsible for the deaths of these people on the train, and he spends his whole life trying to make up for it in small little ways and little here, little here, little there. And by the time he reaches the end of his life, he's done so many thousands of acts of retribution to try to make up for it that it almost does. So that's an important thing, too. You know, we need to allow ourselves to be forgiven and we need to forgive others. Yeah, I think that what you're speaking to is really about the shame that is so toxic that people carry. And my mindfulness teacher once said to me that everything we feel we can be with except for shame, because shame is so toxic. Like even grief and pain, there's a way that we as humans know how to witness that inside yeah. and to be with it. But I say shame because everyone has parts of themselves where they are brave and in integrity. And everyone I know has parts of themselves that lie. You know, even being a people pleaser, you're lying. 
you want to belong. So you lie about something where you want to say no, but you say yes. Right. You want to tell someone at Thanksgiving something you care about and you're afraid you won't belong. So you lie. And that means you don't belong to anyone in that moment. You don't even belong to yourself. So it's the shame that really we're talking about. Cause if we had the ability to just set the shame aside, then we could be radically transparent and say, here's where I make mistakes because everyone does make mistakes. And right. there's something so valiant about a person being willing to say, these right. are all the pl- parts of me that are broken because right. who isn't broken? And then we, we don't need to judge people so harshly when right. they're broken because we all have that capacity to be yep. liars. Yep. But you're very right about shame. Shame is a, a very powerful emotion and shame, you know, for many years in Japanese society, just to give you an example, shame was probably the single biggest molder of the society's behavior. People did anything to avoid shame. So family matters or business matters were conducted in a way to avoid shame because shame was considered such a a poisonous thing to have or to bring upon your family or to bring upon your family name or whatever. And it actually molded people's behavior. Now, I would venture to say that we've reached a point in America where shame is kind of out the window. And uh, we probably could use a little bit more of it in some cases because we're kind of shameless in some of the things that we do. But in the case of this story, Nico, the little boy, becomes a pathological liar from the moment he realizes he told his first lie and his lie cost people lives or may have cost people lives. He can't tell the truth again. And from age 11 on forward, all that comes out of his mouth is a lie. And he becomes very successful because liars can succeed in this world. But he's so ashamed of what he did that not only can he face the truth of his own life, he can't face any truth. Even to say what he had for breakfast that morning is too close to the fact that the truth would take him to the truth of what he did. So he just lies about what he had for breakfast that morning. And he goes through his life this way and becomes, like I say, very successful out in Hollywood, of all places, where where lies actually get turned into TV series. And it's interesting to watch how, because it's also a love story, and there's a, a woman you know who was a little girl with him at the time who he helped save, who doesn't believe that he did what he did maliciously and spends her whole life trying to find him to forgive him. And uh, and we follow their sort of story throughout the course of the book. Well, it's um, because we're now talking about shame, right? Which is such a toxic universal problem and telling the truth and lying, which again, these are issues that we all face. You know, it just strikes me that the biggest lies that we ever tell are to do with the ways we separate ourselves from other people mm-hmm. because we all have all of this in common. This is our shared humanity is wanting to be in integrity while also having part of us that uh, is not always in integrity, right? These are some of the things that actually unite us as people. Just literally yesterday, I was just told this story this guy named Kasim, who runs something called Christians United for Israel, he tells me the story that he was training for ISIS. He was radicalized, training for ISIS. 
And somebody told him to read Alan Dershowitz's book. And he was so enraged about all the lies in Alan Dershowitz's book about Israel. And he went to Israel to like prove this wrong before he went back into ISIS. And he was so destroyed because he loved his visit there. He couldn't believe what he saw. He realized his whole life he had been robbed of his trials had radicalized into this very scary, very toxic place. And he converted on the spot to Christianity. And now he runs this organization called Christians United for Israel. And he spends every day. And it reminds me of this little boy because he is out there now talking about the way that he was taught to hate and how that literally just destroyed him as a person. And now he was, he was about to offer his life for a lie to be part of something so cruel and so evil and so scary. And then he fell in love with Christianity and he's very, very happy and thriving. And now he wants so much. All he wants to do now with his life is to be kind and to unite all people and to have all people feel free. And I'm saying to myself, gosh, this has to be on all the airwaves, like this conversation. Because the truth is, we all have the capacity on some level to feel that the only one side to be on is the side of loving and kindness and making space for everybody. And anything that's the opposite of that, any kind of judgment or shame for any part of ourselves or other people, that's the lie. That has to be the lie. And so I'm so grateful that you just continuously dig deep to find these really important messages and you share them. And now that the book is coming out in this moment, how do you feel when you're going to sleep at night knowing that you're writing this book and already, as you said, for years, our own country in the, in the United States has been so judging of each other and divided, having nothing to do even with these headlines recently, but it's all coming to such a crescendo. It must hit you every night when you go to sleep that this book is going to be a very important piece of work. Well, when I go to sleep, I, I'm more worried about other people, to be honest with you. I have a, as you know, I have this orphanage. I operate in Haiti and I have 65 kids there. And when I go to sleep, I'm thinking about them and not my career or my books. But I, I have given some thought to what I'm going to say when I'm asked about the connections between the time that I write about with this book and what's going on now. Cause I know that's going to happen. You know, I'm doing a many weeks of touring and I'm doing a bunch of podcasts and shows and TV shows and things like that. And I think what I would say is if you are Jewish, then, and even if you're not, you are probably familiar with the phrase never again. And it was born out of the Holocaust and spoken and promised and uttered on the lips of, of the children and of the grandchildren and of the great-grandchildren of the people who survived that awful time to try to ensure that it would never, ever happen again. And if my story coming out at this time gets some attention because of what's going on, if only for the fact that they can read in this book how everything was normal, 
and how a city that had a majority Jewish population, just like Israel has a majority Jewish population, nonetheless was wiped out in a matter of months because of lies that people believed on the outside and a force that rallied around those lies and became evil, then I will have done my small part to try to keep that phrase, never again, on the lips of people at a time when most of the survivors of that last time are dying or gone. That's the thing that I worry about, you know. If I'm granted by God enough time to live on this earth as, you know, another 20 years or whatever, I'll be living at a time when no one will be left who actually can remember what really took place during the Holocaust and during World War II. And when no one's around to actually remember, it's very easy to start rewriting history. There's some rewriting of history that's going on right now in the Mideast conversations. And that stuff's even more recent. You know, no, that's not really what happened. That's not really the way it was. That's not really. So when no one is around to say, no, I was there. And here's how it was, was. It's very easy for people to say, oh, the Holocaust was exaggerated. It wasn't a systemic murder of Jews. It was a war. It was things happened in war, whatever excuses are made. So I hope that this story in its own way shows the consequences of forgetting and shows the consequences of lying because we can do neither when it comes to that period of time. There was nothing like it in the history of the world, but October 7th had elements of what it was like. And, uh, you know, not on that scale, but that the sheer cold-blooded, don't care if it's women, children, babies, doesn't matter. We're terror coming in. And the only reason is because you are of a certain religion that has eerily similar overtones to what took place on a daily basis in the concentration camps and in the attacking of towns that led to those concentration camps. So we're already living proof that never again doesn't always mean that it's impossible for it to happen. So that's what I hope if people ask me, you know, well, your book, whether you intended it to be or not, which I didn't intend it to be, but it's timely. What's the connection? There's your connection. Read what happened and don't let it happen again. It's a pretty spot on important, almost prophetic message in this moment. And my hairdresser is Muslim. She grew up in Iran and uh, we've known each other for seven years and she converted to Christianity. She married her husband, who's a Christian Armenian. And for the last two years, she's been part of this women life freedom movement in Iran. And really the stories she tells me, I see her every six days and the stories she tells me are just so heartbreaking. And I've been looking at it for two years. And I know a lot of people started to talk about Masa Amini and all the things that were happening there. And I think that it's very easy for people to believe propaganda and to not step back and say, wait a minute, there are women who've been screaming to be heard in Iran And she says to me three days ago, she comes in crying and she says, do you think that there will be a miracle and that this will be the end of Iran, that Iran somehow the greatest exporter of terror, which has been behind Hezbollah, Hamas, Taliban, that they will go down 
please, please promise me you think that will happen. And I said to myself, isn't it interesting that here she is Muslim. She converted to Christianity. She really feels ties to both of those faiths. And here I am, a Jewish girl whose grandparents escaped the Holocaust. And she and I are on the same page, united for all people to live in peace and united against all forms of terror to be gone. And she says, Kathy, how is it that I have to teach my American friends how much Iran wants to be free of this kind of thing? And the way women are treated in Pakistan, Afghanistan, they can't leave their homes. And th- and how can anyone be on the side of that? And I said, because they don't see anything but very quick lies and very quick propaganda. And I said, and this is how people wind up, well-meaning people wind up doing very off things. And I want to just keep making those connections. But I'll tell you what, being the grandchild of people who went through horror I have generational trauma. It's scary for me to even have this conversation with you and we're not doing anything but talking, wanting kindness and goodness for the world. And I, I feel literally my heart, I'm, I'm shaking having this conversation because of where I came from, what I know, right? And I can say all I know is my own life experience, which is having lived in Israel for three years. Everyone I know, all we want to do is create coexistence and peace. It's very difficult when there is some people who they don't necessarily want that. They just want you to no longer be there. It's very difficult to make make those strides. And I think what you're doing is very brave. You're very beloved and you have a lot at stake. And to be somebody who everybody loves and to then write a book, even without this going on, about the Holocaust, it puts you in a certain position. And it took courage for you to do that. It really took strength for you to do that. And people who aren't coming from this kind of history, they don't know the kind of strength and courage it takes to do what you're doing. But you are such an ambassador of kindness. You do have an orphanage that you look after in Haiti. You, you have had your own adopted child. You, you've, you've done so much for your community in Detroit. That in of itself is such a testament that when someone who's as kind and good as you also says things like this, I think people hopefully will listen with a greater attention. Well, I think the message is more important than me. And, uh, you know, I hope that my readers, if they really do enjoy me the way that you're suggesting or care for my work the way that they do, then they'll just see this as another book that has a theme in it that I think is important that we share. A backdrop in the end, isn't the most important thing. The important thing is is the lessons that were learned from it, you know, and uh, the overtones of the story that we can take and apply. And that's no different than Tuesdays with Maury or the five people you meet in heaven or anything else that I've written. And I've written about Christian characters and I've written about a church. I've written about Haitian orphanage, which is a Christian orphanage. And I've never felt that, well, therefore, my Jewish readers might not care as much for it because it's those are the subjects no i've I've never found that the jewish readers embrace the stories the same way and now if this book is set during the holocaust and by the way that not all the characters are jewish some of the one of the really key characters who helps one of the main characters survive is a catholic woman in hungary who takes in one of the kids and hides her 
during all the years of the war. So, you know, stories are stories. And in the end, it's a novel. I'm not writing history, but I am setting it against history to show that there are lessons to be learned from all of our times here on earth. And that particular time taught us a very important lesson, taught us many. In this case, I picked one, which is truth. And uh, unfortunately, the person who made this quote famous was himself a Nazi. But that doesn't mean that it's not true. And the quote was, you know, a lie told once is easily seen as a lie, but a lie told a thousand times becomes the truth. And think about that in our current world. Forget about the Mideast. Just think about that in American life. How, you know, if we tell the same lie a thousand times, it suddenly is the truth. And how many times that's true and been true. So that's something we need to learn now. And I try to write books that will make sense 10 years from now and 20 years from now, too. And hopefully this current conflict will will come to an end and you pray for some kind of peace, peaceful solution in the Mideast. I still want this book to resonate with people. And it won't be because of the times we're in. It'll be because if I did a good job, it'll be because uh, there's a lesson that's timeless there. And I think truth is, is certainly timeless. So, so true. And I hate to say I love that quote, because as you just told me, that quote is something that a Nazi said, which is it's hard to then reconcile how good that quote is. It came from somebody who wanted to do damage with it. But it really it really makes sense that if you say it enough times, it just becomes the truth. And that is timeless. And I agree with you that that needs to be applied to so much of what people are experiencing in our lives globally in every well realm in every way and so it is it's so key and it's so important i'm curious as we're sort of closing and and ending with this one of the things that you said is timeless is truth and the need for telling the truth and finding the truth i also believe this is i guess a quote from anne frank that people are good at heart and i think that's timeless and i'm curious your look and your hope for humanity, because when you go through the process of researching and writing a book like this, it's very easy to start to tell yourself a lie, which is that we're doomed and the world is a rotten place. But my grandmother, who had survived the war, says to me, there's always a way to see the bad, but if you look for the good, you'll always find it. And I feel grateful that no matter how much horror my Jewish grandparents went through, that's what they told me. That's what they taught me is to have compassion and to keep knowing that if you look for the good, you'll find it. So I'm curious, what's your outlook for the world coming out of something like this and seeing it, seeing the world as it is today? What do you think is on the horizon? Do we have what to be hopeful for? Well, I, I agree with your grandmother and I, I've been criticized for being too hopeful. Someone once tried to poke fun at me, a critic, by calling me the king of hope. And I thought the only thing funny about that was that he thought it was an insult because I think it's a badge of honor, you know. And if you read The Little Liar, you'll actually see that the three children who it focuses on and follows for, you know, 40 years all end up in a very positive way and a hopeful way. And There's a moment in the book when they're in the concentration camp where the grandfather in the story gathers everyone in their bunk every night 
for prayers and they have someone outside who coughs so that the guards can't hear that they're praying. And at the end of the prayers, he insists that everybody go around and say one good thing that happened that day. Now imagine this is in a concentration camp, but one good thing. And they, they say like, well, my rotten tooth fell out. Uh, I got an extra spoonful of soup today. I saw a bird, you know, and even in that worst possible imaginable environment, the need to find something good is overwhelming, was overwhelming. And, you know, I took that from accounts that I read from people who were in prison there who did exactly that, you know, found some kind of exercise to sneak outside for 60 seconds to look at the sun just to be reminded of the greatness of the universe or whatever. And I think that that's our inclination. That's what we do. And and we have that within us. And uh, as long as we have that within us, I'm very hopeful for the future of our world and our societies. It's so beautiful. And I'll just end by saying to you that a, a Holocaust survivor that I knew, Rebbit Sinester Youngrei, said to me that we have a morning blessing to be like a rooster. And she said it's because the rooster is the first one that just when it gets as dark as it can be, the rooster knows the light's about to come and that that's one of the morning blessings in the Jewish prayer book. And I think that's such a needed blessing for all of us to always know that that means it's just the beginning of the story and that there's always a light coming around the corner. Thank you for being such an ambassador of that light in so many ways and being so steadfast in your humility and just telling stories, telling stories really important stories. Tell everybody where, I believe the book comes out on the 14th of November, is that correct? And tell everybody where's the best place to get the book. You can get it anywhere at any bookstore. Independent bookstores are always great if you can support them. I think that's important. Uh, But of course, you can get it on Barnes & Noble and Amazon. That's so awesome. And I love supporting indie bookstores. Thank you for being here on every level for being so present, so kind, being here right now, sharing the story. It's really a gift. Just, you know, I just want to end by saying I I was in a a meeting the other day with a group of Jewish people talking about what's going on and what can we do. And I said, we have to be more than anti-anti-Semitism. We have to be pro something. And every person, any religion, we what are we pro? What are we for? And what are we doing to bring light? And I just feel like every word out of your mouth is pro-goodness. And so I love that you uh, just keep carrying on doing your work. Thank you. Thank you, Kathy. It's good to see you again. You're so sweet. Have an amazing day. Thank you for coming. Mitch is such an amazing soul, and I love speaking with him. Here are the takeaways. Number one, sometimes the truth is tough to face, but we have to make truth a priority. Make it a priority over what you want to hear. Number two, we need to allow ourselves to be forgiven and we need to forgive others. Number three, the only one side to be on is a side of loving and kindness and making space for everyone. Number four, never again. Number five, there are lessons to be learned from all of our times here on earth. Number six, the truth is certainly timeless. And number seven, even in that worst possible imaginal environment, find something good. Say one good thing that happened that day. Just to be reminded of the greatness of the universe, it's our inclination. As long as we have that within us, there's a lot of hope for the future, our world, and our societies. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening. I'm so clear that there's so many other things that you have going on, so I really appreciate that you spend your time listening to this within your busy day. We have so many good episodes coming up, so please make sure that you follow along. 
on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you're listening. And if you love what you heard today, please leave us a review and share the show. Share the show with someone today because I think this kind of conversation is the kind of conversation we need to be having. And finally, if you want to join me and you want to join this incredible membership, this sisterhood of amazing women, you want to meditate together, you want some coaching, you want to work together to build your dreams and design the world that you want to be a part of, then join us in the quilt. Go to kathyheller.com slash quilt. And I just love you. I love you so much. I'll leave you with a song and I'll talk to you soon.